Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Welcome to the Sustainability Learning Lab here. Uh, my name is Tara Kopis. I'm a Sustainability Manager with JLL. At JLL, we take a responsible and a sustainable approach in all that we do while working to shape the future of real estate. We are pleased to sponsor the Sustainability Learning Theater, and now it is my pleasure to introduce Trevor Langdon, CEO and co-founder of Green Standards, who will be speaking with us today on where ESG meets workplace change, the power of sustainable decommissioning. So everyone, welcome Trevor. Thank you very much. Um, great to be here with everyone. Uh, I came in on Saturday, as I'm sure many of you did, and I've been kind of bobbing around going to different sessions. And yesterday came by, because if you're presenting in a session, you want to be able to come and visualize what's it going to be like. So I came here for 1 o'clock and looked up and saw one of the smaller TV screens that I've seen in the last few days and immediately ran home and had to adjust all my slides to make them a little bit more legible. So this will this will come up in a sec. I've got, uh, I'm doing the whole QR code thing, so there will be a QR code that you can open your phones and have a look at, and you'll see that as the slide deck goes on, it progressively gets larger and larger and larger, because I knew nobody would be able to get it the first time. So I think by the very end, when it's full screen, um, it'll be there and it'll work. Um, exciting topic today, something I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you guys about, and I'll get to our learning objectives in a moment, but scaling back a little bit and pulling back from learning objectives. What I'm also hoping, if it's not too ambitious, is that people leave today feeling motivated and energized and, dare I say, even a little bit inspired. Not about the work that we do at Green Standards, although that would be great, but about understanding that you, each of you, in your roles in your business, have an opportunity to make a difference, a change, and an impact on lives both within your organization but also within your communities that maybe wasn't immediately apparent when you saw the job description that you applied for six months ago or six years ago or a couple of decades ago. So I'm hoping that that'll lead to some, some, energizing, uh, some energizing energy. Um, objectives for today. So want to be able to enhance people's understanding of ESG principles really at a macro level. Um, also want to help enhance understanding of circularity and sustainable decommissioning. So getting a little bit deeper into each of these two topics and demonstrate how each of these are relevant to everyone here, regardless of what role you happen to have at your organization. We'll then tie the concepts together. Um, and I really want to make sure that everyone feels that they can leave here today with something actionable, something they could actually go and do in the next week or month that will uh, take some of what you've learned here today and, and allow you to apply it to what you do day in, day out. Um, when talking about ESG, especially if you're talking about helping to build some comprehension around ESG, I find it's helpful to get a bit of an understanding of what the baseline knowledge is. I talk to people who work in ESG all the time, and so I'm in a bit of an echo chamber. Uh, most of them are kind of on the expert side of things, but I wanted to try to take some of those qualitative feedback loops and make them a bit more quantitative. So I put up a, a poll on LinkedIn uh, the other week to try to gauge what people's level of understanding was. And I was really impressed with how it came back because I think if I had done this a year or two ago, there would have been a lot more respondents in that top line. So really great to see people moving into that middle world where it's something that's starting to actually be part of what they're doing in their day-to-day -day work. Um, and then certainly some that are, 
a bit more uh, strong and actively engaged as well. And I'd say that this maps on really well to what I've experienced, again, anecdotally, this weekend, just taking in sessions and having conversations. This seems to be about where most people are at. And the great thing about that is that because there aren't very many people in that top line, when I come to talk to you about ESG, I don't have to start with E stands for environmental and S stands for social. We can skip past that a little bit. But what I do also find is that a lot of people, even if they are practitioners of ESG, even if it's part of what they're doing day to day in their job, don't necessarily have a full comprehension or understanding of the origins of it. Um, and so what people sometimes don't realize is that this is a concept, certainly that started decades ago, but really came into its current shape in around 2004, when the United Nations released their Principles for Responsible Investment report titled, Who Cares Wins? And the idea behind that was it was supposed to set the stage for helping investors and allocators of capital make decisions about how to allocate their capital taking into consideration things like environmental and social risk of the things they were going to be investing in down the road. A lot of people don't know that, even if they're in ESG uh, in their day-to-day -day world. And so fast forward 20 years, and what has it become? Uh, as we all know, a little bit politicized, uh, accused of woke capitalism, greenwashing. It has become a way for some of those fund managers to mark up the management fees on those investments without necessarily delivering any more value, and that all is really unfortunate. Uh, but the other thing that it's become, I think, in the last 20 years is this sort of internal catch-all phrase for all sorts of initiatives related to sustainability and community impact. And some people would say that that is a bad thing. I don't necessarily think that it is, because to me what that means is that ESG is really starting to permeate the organization the whole way through. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. So where is it headed? Getting back to the disclosure side of it or the investment side of it, uh, if you are in this space, you are probably aware of, and when I say the SEC disclosures that are coming, you know what I'm talking about. Um, this is a, a, a set of disclosures that the SEC is going to require publicly reporting companies to report into uh, if they want to stay favorably listed on exchanges, and they're going to have to report on things like their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you also probably know that this was supposed to be here by now. It was supposed to have rolled out for the entire of this year, and when that didn't happen, it was supposed to roll out in October of 2023, and October of 2023 is now, and it hasn't happened yet, and unless they're going to play a little trick-or-treat on everyone tomorrow, uh, on the 31st of October, it's not going to happen in October 2023. So this is probably coming more like quarter one or quarter two of next year. So if you're in your organization and these conversations are ongoing and you're hearing people talk about mandatory disclosures, that's probably about the timeline that we're looking at now. But the other place that I think it's headed is, again, more of that kind of bottom-up uh, approach, which is less about ESG disclosures and top-down requirements, and more about companies just believing and understanding that this is just good and important for business. Our employees want this, our communities want this, our customers want this. And I think that's really well summed up uh, by this quote here. So Alan Smith is the CEO of Fortune. Fortune obviously releases the Fortune 500, Fortune 100. Um, Alan puts out a newsletter every day. He's got this really, really incredible world where he just gets to spend all of his time talking to CEOs, senior executives of the Fortune 500 about trends. And one one of the things that comes up a lot is ESG, and what he has come to the realization of is that SEC closures be damned, uh, disclosures be damned, 
companies and corporate leaders have decided that this is something that is good for their business and they're going to be pushing forward with regardless. So I think that this is um, just a really good sign of, again, that permutation throughout. What else do we need to know about ESG? It can get messy and very chaotic and very complicated. So I'm seeing some wide eyes here and I'm seeing some nods of yes, I know and understand this, this world. Um, if you are in the world of trying to report within ESG, you understand that there are literally dozens of disclosure standards and frameworks and reporting mechanisms. It's a complicated, complicated world. Now the SEC disclosures are hopefully going to bring some clarity to that, um, but there's a lot of back and forth. The reason it hasn't come out yet, there's a lot of back and forth still trying to figure out what the right way to do this is. So how's this relevant to me in my world? Well, there's kind of, again, two ways that this could be relevant to you. One is that top-down requirement SEC route where your companies are just going to have to report on this stuff, uh, whether they want to or not. But then the other is the, I would call it the internal route. And that is where it's driven more bottom-up by customers, more bottom-up by employees, uh, and by uh, commitments that your organizations have made. So if any of you work for or work with organizations that have done anything like state a net zero goal or subscribe to the UN uh, sustainable development goals, all of this is relevant to you in some way, shape, or form, and it's going to trickle down to you and your organization regardless of what role you have right now. Okay, so switching gears out of ESG and more into decommissioning and circularity. Um, what is it? We have been at Green Standards uh, banging this drum for almost 15 years now. We uh, started in 2009, and our whole world is sustainably decommissioning. And w I would say that three years ago, if I was up here talking to you, I again would have been uh, met with probably a little bit of, of wide-eyed and confusion about the term sustainable decommissioning. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that for the most part, when I use those words in a sentence, people have some idea of what it is that I'm talking about, which is fantastic. Um, for those of you who may not, it is the alternative or the evolution from what has conventionally been available, which is I have furniture, I have equipment, I have supplies that I don't need anymore in my office, what do I do with them? Call my mover, call my liquidator, uh, maybe call my dealer and just make it go away. And unfortunately, the make it go away solution has led to tens of millions of tons of furniture ending up in landfill every single year. So sustainability or sustainable decommissioning, pardon me, circularity is about moving beyond that into a world that is um, being able to design out waste, extend the life cycle of products, and get them to their next end use where they are creating their, their maximal value. Uh, the way we do that at Green Standards is by prioritizing things like reuse within an organization, in-kind donation to nonprofits, and I'll touch on that more in a second, resale, refurbishment where it's relevant, um, and then recycling where it's required. I'll pause here because there's one thing that I'm very, very excited to be able to share with you guys today. This is hot off the press, and a few of you who are in the audience um, right now were actually participants in this. Um, we've been working for the last few months on putting together what we're calling the, a report entitled The State of the Circular Workplace Right Now. There are a lot of uh, industries that I would say are well ahead of corporate real estate and furniture when it comes to circularity, and we have some catching up to do. And so just this morning, we uh, connected where we had um, the result of outreach to about 25 or 30 different partners, some of whom, again, are, uh, are in this room with us right now, which is great, where we basically asked the question of, what is your firm doing right now to promote circularity? 
What do you see the future of circularity looking like? And what sort of roadblocks do you think are in the way of uh, realizing that future? And so the QR code that was up on the screen a second ago that was probably way too small for anyone to, to be able to use will come up again and it'll get bigger every time you see it. Uh, I'd love for everyone to uh, give that a scan and go and download the report. Again, it's, it's live and fresh today and learn about how they can become more involved in this. When we talk about seeing this in action, because yes, we have work to do, but yes, there's a lot of solutions that exist right now and are out there already. Um, this is what it looks like for us. So here's a little case study of some work we did with one of the five major banks in the US uh, earlier this year where we worked with them to decommission 14 floors of furniture from one of their towers, about 360,000 square feet. And the outcomes were uh, remarkable. So diverting a uh, high 90% of everything that came out of that building from landfill, starting with reuse, right? Starting with working with the client to figure out what in this space can you actually reuse either somewhere else in this space or potentially elsewhere within your real estate portfolio. A, that's keeping things out of landfill, but it's also saving a lot of money. 43% was then resold to a couple of buyers who took that furniture and redeployed it as is, and also a couple who are in the remanufacturing space who are able to remanufacture that furniture and extend its life cycle. Then the really exciting part for me, 28% of it was donated to 30 nonprofit organizations tightly encircled within that building, within about 20, 30 miles of that building, and that generated over $600,000 worth of in-kind donations. So when I talk about trying to inspire and motivate a little bit and see how we in our practice can impact lives of people we may not even know and certainly didn't think we were gonna be able to impact through our work in real estate, this is exactly how that happens. And then about 19% recycled. To breathe a little bit more life into that donation figure, because you can hear 30 nonprofits, okay, and $600,000, but what does that mean? What does that actually look like? How does that impact people? I've been with Green Standards since the beginning, and this is one of my favorite stories of in-kind donation that we've been a part of. So uh, Salvador, who is the CEO of the Foothill Community Health Center in San Jose, California, this is an organization that provides medical services and healthcare services to people who just can't afford it for whatever reason. And he was able to quantify the value or the impact of that in-kind donation. So because Salvador didn't have to take money out of his programming budget to buy furniture, he was able to direct those funds towards their mission and actually measure that it helped to provide care to 150 individuals who would not have been able to otherwise access healthcare. Really powerful stuff. How is this relevant to me, sustainable decommissioning and circularity? I don't want to hit everyone over the head with the stats on here because we all know what these stats are and we've all been talking about all of this for a long time, but I think that the message to take away from this is that more than any other time in the last several decades, workplace change is just ripping right now. There is so much change happening in our world. And anytime that there is workplace change, um, there is the need for sustainable decommissioning. And so bringing these two concepts together in a world where ESG is really front and center in everything that we're doing and a world where workplace change is just constant and amplified and part of our day-to-day -day lives all of the time, where those two worlds overlap is where circularity comes into play and circular workplaces. And so that's the connection of these two ideas. To get a little bit more granular though, if you want to be more technical about it, what does this actually mean from a reporting standpoint? People who are familiar with reporting into ESG understand scope one, scope two. Scope three is the big hairy mess that everybody's afraid to tackle. Maybe that's not really the way to put it. Don't know how to tackle, don't know where to start. 
Many organizations have some sort of a playbook or there are lots of consultants out there who can help guide you through scope one and two, addressing those scopes. Scope three is the everything else. It's the everything else in your value chain and it's a big, 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 hairy thing to try to tease apart and deal with. Um, with workplace change, with sustainable decommissioning, I can help you a little shortcut here because sometimes you just need a little bit of low-hanging fruit, a little bit of easy wins that you can get into a scope three to get the ball rolling. Uh, scope three is divided into 15 categories and waste generated in your operations is category five. So anything that is waste or debris that's coming out of a workplace renovation project needs to be reported on in scope three, category five. By being more circular in your approach to this, you can have much more favorable metrics and uh, data that you're reporting into that scope three, category five. So that's really where the two worlds come together. And again, hopefully helping to make this chaotic world seem a little bit more manageable with but one easy win there. So let's get into what we can do about it. Uh, how to incorporate circularity into your workplace strategy. This is, this is the big one. There, there's a whole bunch of ways you can do it, but I think the one that I find myself frustrated by when having conversations with some of our enterprise clients um, and that I know that they feel frustrated by because it's very easy to say this and it's a little bit harder to do it, is that this really needs to be an enterprise approach. This is not about doing the right thing on one project in one city and then having the other 90% of your real estate portfolio be a blind spot where you don't know what's happening. So the planning needs to happen at an enterprise level. Again, it's complicated, but that's what we need to get to. Second is you need to make sure that any reporting that is coming from any kind of vendor or service provider is fully auditable. Better yet, it's been assured. You don't necessarily need this in the absence of these SEC disclosures, but when those start to come into place, when you are actually taking this data and putting it out publicly as part of one of these disclosures, everything in there needs to be verifiable and auditable. So this is super, super, super important. So ask, ask about this when you're working with a service provider. And finally, engage your sustainability and ESG teams. I'm sure you're already doing this, but this is not just something for those of us in workplace and real estate to solve. We need to bring in uh, the, the support from the ESG side as well. Okay, getting bigger now. Hopefully that QR code's <laughs> working for everyone. Um, actionable takeaways. I wanted to break this down into a few different groups. So if you are a designer, and I know that there are some designers, I can see you sitting here. Please, 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 you guys have such an important relationship with the client and you are early and you are trusted and you are connected with them and you are an advisor to them. Engage them early about conversations around reuse. It's so, so, so important. It, it hasn't been happening and it needs to happen. Designers have such a, a remarkable, remarkable opportunity here to talk to their clients about this because their clients probably aren't going to ask them. So really great opportunity to take a leadership role here. If you're on the manufacturer side or the dealer side, Chances are you have some sort of end-of-life program, whether you know about it or not. So connect with your head office, ask them what sort of an end-of-life program you have or extended producer responsibility program you have. And then instead of waiting for your clients to come to you with an RFP that has one sentence in it about helping with their furniture at end-of-life, engage them proactively well before that RFP comes out and talk to them about this so that they can plan about it. Because by the time it's in the RFP stage, it's too late and we're getting into that smoke and mirrors game of boiling in costs of RFP of decommissioning into costs of selling furniture and it's not transparent it doesn't work 
if you're an end user, listen to the designers and manufacturers that want to have this conversation with you. Um, but really, really try to pivot towards enterprise level thinking. Try to build the cause internally. Again, I would pull on the disclosure idea here. When these disclosures come out, it is not going to be enough to just be able to report into the SEC about what's happening in 5 or 10 or 15% of your real estate portfolio. You're going to need to cover the entire 100%. And then for everyone here, whether you fall into one of these categories or not, I would really love to encourage you to join us on this journey of workplace circularity. We are really trying to build a community and an ecosystem of people who can action some of this stuff in their day-to-day -day world. The report that we put out tomorrow, this morning is very exciting, but it's just a first step, and there's so much more to do. And so we want to really build a community here. We think there's so much shared knowledge that we can harvest, um, and we're going to be looking at all the ways that we can take this report and turn it to something that doesn't just exist on LinkedIn for 48 hours, but actually makes some change in, uh, in the world's rim. And then my last note here, again, just kind of getting back to trying to build some, build some inspiration, if you will. Um, the, the risk is huge, but the opportunity is also huge. Furniture and equipment is a $20 billion industry in the US alone every year. That means that every year there's $20 billion worth of furniture that is being manufactured and sold into workstations. This is even true after the pandemic. Um, what does that mean, though? That means that it is also potentially displacing $20 billion worth of furniture every year that has been sitting in these office, offices. Furniture that was at one time worth $20 billion. It's not worth it anymore. So a huge, huge, huge risk if we don't get this right, but a huge opportunity as well, as a billion square feet are renovated every single year, and tens of millions of tons are sent to landfill every year. So let's look at this as something that all of us can be part of changing, seizing, capturing, and getting right as we go into the future in a world that is hopefully a much more circular workplace. And there's the big one to, to, to finish it all off. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate your time today. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.